It's, uh, this is a privilege and uh, a blessing to be able to gather together for worship. I was talking to somebody a couple days ago, and we were talking about the challenge of going to church um, and, and why this family had decided to just stop. And one of the things that they were saying was, uh, it was they weren't a part of our community, for the record. Um, they were saying, yeah, you know, it's, it's like kind of the same thing over and over again. And, uh, and, and, just, and I just want to like vamp on that for a second. That's the point. That's the point. Yeah, so it's so powerful what you've chosen to do this morning. It's so powerful. We just sang three songs full of beautiful theology, and the challenge is to, like, engage that, choose to believe that, connect the heart and the mind and the voice. I mean, when else do you get this, this challenge, like, right out of the gate to just, like, surrender your heart to the Lord? In a minute, we're going to hear the gospel preached right? And we're going to be challenged by the truth of the word. And we're going to be encouraged by the truth of the word this morning. And, and this, is like a, this is like an act of personal surrender. It really is. It's like saying, I will choose to put myself under the teaching of another brother or sister as they open the word to me. I don't know what they're going to say, but I know it's from the word. I know it's from the gospel. And, and I'm going to like surrender my heart to be shaped by this. Of course, it's uncomfortable. Of course, it's encouraging, right? And it's so important. And the fact that we do this together in this community, uh, it just creates this, this rhythm. Yes, it's not novel. It's not a show. It's this pattern. It's this ongoing, consistent rhythm of transformation, and you've chosen to be a part of it this morning, and, and I just think it's the best choice you can make. Uh, I think this is the way that lives are affected and, and deeply changed by the truth of Jesus, somebody who lived 2,000 years ago and is still changing people's lives today. So welcome. I'm so glad you're with us. I've been in Wisconsin all week. I was teaching at uh, Wheaton College's Outdoor Center for Leadership Development, and I uh, got to do a, a long class all week, and I just got back, and so I'm super thankful that Ken McKinney uh, is available to preach today. Uh, I'm having a hard time talking, um, and, and Ken, I asked Ken if he would preach, and Ken led a church in San Francisco. You've heard he and his wife teach here before. They've been a part of our community for over a year. He's a gifted preacher. He's got a really good message this morning, so thanks so much, Ken. We're grateful for you. Would you welcome Ken McKinney? All right. Um, hey, if you would like a Bible, um, raise your hand or these notes, because what I'm going to say is so unbelievable, you're going to want to write it down. Um, <laughs> just kidding. I do hope, um, you know, it's my goal really for this morning to, to be helpful. You know, I think in that idea that we, we do come, we come with a rhythm, we come with expectation. Um, it's my hope and my expectation that, that there's something in here uh, for, for you from God that's helpful. I think we live, you know, our lives are just, you know, we walk this, uh, the promise of the gospel is life, life abundant, that Jesus says, I've come to give life and life to the full, but Jesus also says that we have an enemy who opposes that. It says he seeks like uh, a lion prowling around seeking to, to kill, steal, and destroy and so I don't know if you are like me sometimes. I, I show up here feeling like I've only just survived the week. <laughs> and you know what's true is that in this journey, like the soul takes damage and it needs healing. And, and we get together like this to remind ourselves of what is true and to encourage each other in our pursuit of it. But not just the pursuit of knowledge, but of um, restoration and change. And so... That's what we're going to talk about today. So I want to start with a, with a quick story. This is um, from a, a theologian named Henry Nouwen, uh, who passed away um, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, and in a book, he, he wrote this, 
this uh, fable that I think it, it's helpful for us today. So imagine this. He, he imagines twins, a brother and a sister, talking to each other while they're yet still in their mother's womb. Okay, so the sister says to the brother, I don't know, but I believe there's life after birth. (laughs) And the brother's like, what are you talking about? We have everything right here. I mean, it's like cushy, it's dark, it's comfortable, you know, like all we need to do right now is focus on that thing that feeds us. This is all there is. So, you know, the little girl kind of continues, she waits, and then finally she insists, she says, there must be something more than this dark place. There must be something else, a place with light, where there's freedom to move. Still, she couldn't convince her brother, and after some time of silence, she says, kind of anxiously, she says, I have something else to say. I'm afraid you won't believe this either, but I think there is a mother so Easter, Easter is the good news that Jesus is alive. And because he's alive, I mean, you think about that funny story. That's us. That's us looking around this world around us, kicking it in the, on the tires and saying like, ah, this is probably just all there is. And think about the perspective from above, looking back at us. Like we can look back at infants in a womb and say, you just had no idea. You didn't know what was to come. That's the promise of the kingdom of God because Jesus rose from the dead. That's the Easter promise for us. But not only someday far away, but also now. And we're going to kind of spend some time talking about that. So today we're going to look at, it's this incredible scripture. We'll throw it up. It's Acts 1, uh, verse 3. And it says, after his suffering, Jesus presents himself to his disciples and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he, and he um, sorry, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So I don't know about you, but like for a long time, maybe up until like this week, I pretty much think of the Easter story as Jesus rises from the dead, gives a quick high five to his disciples, and then ascends, you know, ascends. And he's gone. And we, we all know the story. And they're staring at the ceiling. And, and they're saying, you know, and, and the disciples say, come on, there's, there's work to be done. Not the disciples. The angels say there's work to be done. But this says there's 40 days, 40 days that Jesus stayed on earth to w- walk with his disciples in a way. And we have to ask ourselves, and, and what, what, was, what, did, what did they need? What did he need to do in them and for them? in order for them to be transformed like we see that they are, from people of fear to people of incredible courage, where their faith, you know, it just begins to change the world, and it entirely changes them. And, and so that's, you know, these 40 days, something happens that we just want to lean in on. And the Bible captures these five appearances of Jesus, one of which is like, you know, Jesus just appears to his disciples and one of them's missing. And then he appears again when Thomas is back. We're going to talk about that today. And so we're going to look at a couple, of, like four of these five um, appearances for what Jesus has, has for us. Um, and I think that we're going to get 
really kind of a, a, a picture of, of this, these two ideas. One is, is just truth. What C.S. Lewis calls reality. The idea that Jesus, risen from the dead, is that is what's most true. It's kind of like the babies in the womb. What's most true is what is to come, even if they don't understand it. And, and so the disciples during these 40 days just get a taste of the reality, no, no longer guarded, no longer guide, um, you know, hidden, no longer in parable. Jesus just explains it to them. He lays it out. He says this, this is what this means. This is what's coming. And that is what's reached us. It's because there's this, there's this message that Jesus lays out. And then also Jesus does some things that maybe I wouldn't expect. And he just makes it deeply personal. He comes for them in a way with restoration, one at a time, person by person, and we're going to get to look at that. So um, I want to just invite Jesus to, to lead us here, and, uh, and then we'll get started. God, we just thank you for Jesus, for all the hope that is Easter, and this message, and this truth, and yet, God, that, that in it there's also life, life abundant, life for us, life that's now in addition to the life that is to come, we ask that you just lead us into things that are, that are helpful and fruitful for us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So the next verse I'll, I'll just put up. This is, Nate started us here. This is one of the appearances, right? Jesus meets the, some of the followers while they're walking. They're dejected. They're on the, the road to Emmaus. Jesus shows up and it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And he's, he basically lays out this. This is the foundation of the gospel. This is the truth about life, the heavens and the earth, uh, the one who created it all himself walking with you and explaining it to you. And while we, while we see all of these things, it begins to kind of unpack what, what is also within us, kind of like, you know, this fable of the babies. It's the idea that somewhere inside us, there's a sense that there is something more. There is someone more, and we, we see it. We can feel it like hunger, like thirst. We know that it's there. There's, there's something beyond. And, and what we begin to see, we bring these two things together, is, is the truth of the gospel that Jesus has come for our rescue and also to restore us. He came for our rescue, but not just for our salvation, but for our restoration. This, this is the Missio Dei. That's what we're calling this whole series. The reason he came, the purpose of G Jesus coming, to rescue and also to restore. So on your notes because I know you, you grab them and you love to take notes. Um, I put just something that I, I hope will kind of be a helpful foundation for us. Um, I'm just going to kind of put this out there, and I, I think it's a great kind of anchor for us while then we jump into the stories. And so it's just two different ways that, you know, over the centuries that have come, um, ways to look at the gospel kind of through two different lenses. So in the one, you can see this idea that you can read the Bible kind of thematically. And these themes jump out at you, right? So we have God, God in creation, God, God who is separate and, and, him, and holy and himself. And then we have sin and the problem of sin. And then we have Jesus, the solution for sin. And then we have faith, our response to that. And in that, we get what is the power of the gospel. So gospel power. 
And our response is simply to believe it. And not just to believe, but to believe and become. You know, this is, this is what is the promise, that I can live out my new identity in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, um, I'm a new creation. Behold, the old things have gone and the new things have come. And, and most of us, that, that sounds familiar, I imagine. That's kind of the gospel as we, as we tend to think of it, is it's the news that salvation is for us and that forgiveness for our sin is real. And yet there's another way you can read the Bible that I think is also helpful, and it's more of the story of the Bible. Um, and it's creation followed by the fall and then through Jesus, the redemption and then what begins to, to, he initiates on earth now and until he comes again is restoration. And it's this side of it. So, so here we have gospel as purpose, gospel purpose. And our response to this is to follow, to take this life that's been revealed to us and to offer it to other people and to lead people into it and to grow into it ourselves, to live out our new purpose in Christ and, and it's there that I think we have this, this aspect of, our, of the gospel that is sometimes, you know, I don't know that we spend a lot of time thinking about the journey of our restoration as much as we do the journey of our belief. And I think today I want us to kind of look at those two things, both our belief, the truth of the gospel, but also our journey of freeing, freedom, healing, power, change, transformation that we see happen in scriptures and that is also available to us. So I want to jump into these stories that Jesus in these stories is going to show us. He's, he's come to rescue. That's the message he's, he's given them, but not just to rescue, but also to restore. So we'll start with Mary Magdalene. So this is John chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, you can find it in John chapter 20, verse 11. And, um, you know, I love, I love how this story gets started and, and some of the things that, you know, maybe your experience in church and in reading the Bible is, is you know, maybe it's, it's kind of felt a little bit, you know, stodgy. Um, and here, the, the writer, John, the Apostle John is writing and he drops a couple of things here that I just think are kind of funny. And I think, you know, when you really like allow yourself to it, there's a lot of humor that Jesus has hidden in scripture just for us. And, uh, and so we're reading about, this is, you know, we just saw Jesus died. And it's Mary who discovers first that he's missing from the tomb. So Mary goes, she sees that he's missing. The stone has been rolled away. And when you read it from John 21, she goes quickly, or from John 20, she goes quickly to find the disciples and say, they've taken the body. Jesus is missing. And so John writes that together he and Peter race to the tomb to go see what's happened. This is not like the great and glorious, you know, angels yet. This is just Jesus is missing. And so they run, and, and John, who describes himself not by name, but as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. He says, I, I, you know, not to name anything here, but I, I'm, I'm the one who had my head up against his, you know, his chest there at that final meal. I'm the disciple Jesus loved. So here, 
when he's talking about this race to the tomb, he says, you know, and then Peter took off and then I followed him. But I mean, you know, I beat him. Um, Like I got there first. But then I stopped and, and, you know, brash Peter, he's the one that like jumps right in. But, you know, I just stopped there at the door. But I, I did beat him, you know. So for centuries it shall be known forevermore that the gospel whom Jesus loved was also faster than Peter. So we'll read, pick up in verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus had body, his body had been. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? And she says, they've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they have put him. And at this, she turns around and sees, she doesn't realize it yet, it's Jesus himself standing there with her. And he asks her, woman, why are you crying? And who is it that you're looking for? Thinking it's the gardener, she says, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me now where you've put him and I will get him. And then Jesus says to her, he says, Mary. And that's all it takes. Immediately, she recognizes him. She hears him. She says, teacher. She throws herself at his feet. And what, what is this story even doing here? Mary was a woman who had, you know, like had seven spirits cast out of her. You know, even, even just the fact that it's Mary who sees him first. It's the first recording of Jesus alive after death, and it's Mary Magdalene who sees this? And she grabs him, and I just think there's so much in this. And you could go a hundred ways, but I, I want to invite you to consider, where was Mary in this moment? I mean, think of everything that Jesus was to her. He was really her savior he had really like set her free and all her hope was bound up in him and he died and she had watched him die a horrible death and she's just you know she's just distraught and I think it's this amazing thing because in this moment you know I think a lot of us find ourselves here too I can only imagine she was filled with fear You know, what is it that you fear right now? For Mary, she's just looking at this great unknown. Here's what I thought was happening. And here, I don't even know what comes next. And it was was just like such, and has this ever happened to you where Satan just goes, just keeps coming harder and harder and harder right at you. And not only did they humiliate him and beat him, and now they've like taken him. And where is he? I don't even know. That's how like deep and distraught she is. And sometimes in our lives, we find ourselves in a place of great fear and anxiety. And we get caught in it and trapped by it and paralyzed by it. But if you can find a word of encouragement in this, in this one appearance, I hope you'll understand this. Jesus comes for Mary and he comes for you. Jesus comes for Mary and he's gonna come for you also. She says, teacher, and I think John maybe wrote that in there as, as a way, as a, this reminder of like, he's our teacher. What has he already taught us about this? And it's Jesus who says, be anxious for nothing. Consider the flowers and the birds and you're so much more valuable than they. And, you know, what can you add to your life? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? 
but seek his kingdom. And all these things, these real legitimate things that you need will be given to you and peace that you can't even understand. Peace that passes understanding. And I want to say I have experienced that peace that passes understanding through the middle of some really difficult things. And I assume half the people here, if not everybody, has a testimony they could tell about the peace that passes understanding. And so when in the face of fear, in the story of Mary, we see that Jesus offers peace. And not only that, but he sees you. He sees Mary. And so many of us, we just need to be seen. And, and in this, we can trust. We can trust this. I've experienced it. Many of you have experienced it if you ask your neighbor. And speaking of trust, we're going to talk about our next our next story here, our next appearance is to the disciple Thomas. And many of you know he's kind of called, he's been labeled the Doubting Thomas, right? Doubting Thomas. And, um, and it's so interesting because, you know, we kind of see this unveil itself. Jesus appears to Mary. Um, Jesus then appears to the room full of his disciples. Then I think he appears to Peter. Then to the Emmaus Road. I mean, you kind of have to read it and see how it works. But Thomas, the first time he appears to the gathered disciples, Thomas just isn't there. We don't know where Thomas is, but he's not there. And so he's kind of famous for saying, the disciples said, we've seen the Lord. Um, And he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where his nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And then a week later, a week passes, and then Jesus shows up again. And this time, goes directly to Thomas when he's gathered with the disciples. And I love this. Jesus says to Thomas, he says, here. He stood with them. He says, peace be with you. Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And we see with Mary, and we see here with Thomas, it's, there's this, like Jesus is, is in, in some way kind. He's kind when he finds us in our fear. He's gracious when he finds us in our doubt. And yet at the same time, he, he, he has more for us. His truth says, look, I, I'm not going to leave you just as I found you. That's not where you need to be. There's a place that I know, and I, I, I can take you there. And he says to Thomas, stop doubting and believe. You know, we live in this culture right now, especially where um, I listened to a podcast this week about the rise of doubt as a cultural virtue, a virtue, like being, you know, suspicious of, of things is somehow being the most enlightened. You know, and you think about like, we live in this culture of expose where every day we're just finding stories of people that are like, oh, wasn't what you thought. Oh, wasn't what you thought. And you can draw the conclusion, not just that some people have something to, to you know, be revealed, but you can believe. And I think a lot of people, especially this podcast says millennials, have grown up saying, in fact, no one is trustworthy. And while, you know, we go to college and we, we you know, our, our beliefs and, our, and our, our system of belief is challenged and vetted and things like that and stretched, you know, you can draw this conclusion. Not that there are multiple perspectives for us to understand, but that, in fact, there is no foundational truth. 
And that's kind of what our culture is saying. That's actually the most enlightened perspective today. But I think the Bible would tell us, and we see Jesus telling Thomas here, that's actually ultimately toxic for your soul. It's toxic for you to live letting doubt take over for the place of conviction. What happens to human conviction? You know, and we find ourselves, we express this, and maybe you've expressed it this way, where, you know, you're like, okay, I mean, it's true that there's even like fake news. We have to figure out what's true around us. I mean, of course, maybe doubt is a virtue, and, and, but we're not sure, you know, so we, we, we find ourselves expressing it when we try our best, maybe just as an act of humility, right? And you, you, you find people, and maybe you've said these words like, I mean, what do I know? This is just what I believe, but who can know? I mean, can anyone really know? And so we find ourselves kind of saying, well, I just don't want to be that arrogant guy. I just don't want to be that one that, that throws the world, you know, and the world would say, look, having an opinion is, is really, you know, you got to be careful. You're not offending somebody else. And Jesus says, stop doubting and believe because there's something actually important about belief in your life. Not, doubt is not a virtue. Your capacity to believe is what is crucial to having a happy life. Your capacity to believe is crucial to having a happy life. Just consider your relationships. Consider marriage or any relationship. The difference between entering into your relationship from a standpoint of doubt, like suspicion. Is she really? Is he really? Can I trust it? Can I trust him? Can I trust her? Can I trust, you know, that friend of mine? As opposed to a position of belief that says, even so, we can overcome this. We can heal from this. We can because I believe in this. I believe in us. Belief is actually what your soul needs and what your life needs to discover what is most true and available in our lives. Your capacity to believe is crucial for the happiness. And I think a word of encouragement from this story, we see Jesus is he's just so compassionate in the way he handles Thomas. And I think for us, we see that in a culture of doubt, Jesus is trustworthy. In a culture of doubt, Jesus is trustworthy. So then we move on to our third story. And, um, and I love this story. So this is captured in John chapter 21. And, um, you know, think about, this is talking about Peter. Think about Peter. So, Peter, the last thing that happened between Peter and Jesus while Jesus was alive was what? His betrayal. He denies him. He denies him again. He denies him a third time, and he makes eye contact with Jesus, and he just falls apart. He's like, I failed. I'm a failure. This is what's most true about me. And in this interaction between Jesus and Peter, he says, Peter, that's not what's most true about you. That's not what's most true about you. So Peter, think about that. When Jesus appears in the room to the disciples and everybody's running off to tell Thomas, we found Peter, we found Jesus, not Peter. We found Jesus, he's alive. Imagine the impact on Peter when he was in that room. 
can you see Peter might have just literally gone like this? Uh-oh. Like he's alive. And I am so out of place here. He's alive. It's true. And I've just ruined it. I'm out. There's nothing for me here. I've failed. And man, I got to tell you, I have done things in my life that have left me in that exact place. I have failed beyond recovery here. And God in his graciousness has, has led me even through failure. And he's going to do that here with Peter. And I just love it. So the story is that Peter, think about that. He leaves the upper room. He sees Jesus. And it's introduced here. It goes, Peter just says, I'm going fishing. You know, Peter's like, I don't even know what to do with all of this. I'm just going to do what I know how to do. I'm going fishing. Several of the disciples join him. They get in the boat. They go out into the water. They don't catch anything. Jesus, again, just kind of this funny line that Jesus does. He goes, hey, children, did you catch anything? He's like 100 yards off from the boat. They're like, no. But the apostle whom Jesus loves says to Peter, Peter, that's Jesus. Because Jesus says, why don't you throw the net on the other side of the boat? And all of a sudden, it's like, we know who that is. And what's amazing is Peter, again, brash Peter, what does he do? You know, Peter, he walked on the water before, right? And so what was amazing to me, I was reading this this week, and I'm like, I'm thinking, like, I'm going to go get to Jesus. I'm going to throw off my shirt and my sandals. I'm like, I'm jumping in the water. Peter girds himself. It's like he puts clothes on to jump in the water. And I just think, what was he thinking? He was going to walk again on water? You know, it's like, I don't know. But he pulls on his clothes, jumps in the water. And gets to Jesus, but when he gets up on the beach, you know, the way that John tells the story, he says, Peter sees Jesus with a charcoal fire, and he's making, he's making breakfast. Last week, Nate said, you know, really important things happen with Jesus over food, and we're going to see that happen again right now. So this charcoal fire, it's interesting because it, it, it only shows up twice in, in the Gospels at all. The first time, this is the second time. The first time is, just happened in uh, John chapter 18, verse 18. It says, around a charcoal fire, Peter was warming himself with the other people in that courtyard where then he betrays Jesus, where then he, for fear of being associated with him and the consequences of that, he betrays Jesus. So Jesus sets up this incredible scene and he knows what Peter's going to see here. Peter sees a charcoal fire, and it's like, it, have, you, have you ever had anything in your life where it's like a trigger? Where you're just like, right, it's like a gunshot through you. It, there, you know, your soul is just wide open. Wind can just blow through you. You're just like, I'm, I'm done. Yes, okay. I just, you know what, before I even get to you, Jesus, I just surrender. I've messed up. I see the coal. I see where this is going. But Jesus does not put this back together to bring attention to his faults, but rather to help him move beyond his failure. Jesus puts this in motion to help him move beyond his failure, and he does the same thing for us. And I think that's, that's what's so amazing, that in my own life I've, I've experienced that I thought it was over and I see Jesus saying, no, not yet. 
That's not, what's the, that's not the truest thing about you. And so Jesus or Peter's failure was painful, right? But not final. And what, what a word for us. Neither is yours. Your failure is, is painful, maybe devastating, but it doesn't have to be final. Jesus came to restore Peter. He comes to restore us. Jesus' love is more powerful than your failure. So for Mary, he takes fear and he, he offers peace. For Thomas, he takes doubt and he offers security. For Peter, he takes failure and he offers him love. And he still has a place for him. So we're going to just kind of pass to this, um, this idea of discipleship. Because what, what is really being presented to us here? You know, we have this, this idea of, of what I think most of us are familiar with, that discipleship is this series of truths that we're, we're to know, and that's what Christianity is largely, is, is this set of beliefs. But, you know, really, that, that is like a great deception about Christianity, that, it, that it's really primarily just something you believe. How helpful is that, you know, how helpful is that when you go, yeah, I know someday I'm, I'm going to go to heaven. Someday I'm going to get out of this thing that I'm in. When the reality is, you know, if I were to ask, you know, how many of you, you know, are excited to go to heaven? Everybody's hands would go up. I've done this before. And how many of you want to go like tomorrow? Every hand comes down because it's like not enough. And Jesus knows it's not enough. Just your knowledge, he says, there's more here, is actually your restoration. There's something for you, not just in what is to come, but right now. You don't have to be stuck where you're stuck, Peter. You don't have to live in anxiety, Mary. Thomas, stop doubting and believe there's a life in this because Jesus came to give life. And so when we think of discipleship, I think often we, we look at it as kind of this... Um, well, first, let me just throw up this, this quote from a song that's happening right now. And I think this is what we saw just happen in these three stories. There's this great uh, song that's it's called The Reckless Love of God. And it says, you know, there's no wall you won't kick down. Lie you won't tear down coming after me. And that's what you see him doing right here. He's like, Mary, Thomas, Peter, Ken. I'm coming for you and for your restoration here and now. So when we think of discipleship, I think a lot of us, we think of it as this line, like discipleship for us is largely this series of knowing and knowing more and knowing better, right? And honestly, that's been true in my life and, and good and helpful. And it was actually, you know, after college, I came home and, and got into a, a Bible study and, and this Bible study just happened to you know, set up my friend and I to compete with each other over who could memorize the most scripture, the fastest and the best. And memorizing the word of God, it's like it unlocks something in my soul that I hadn't experienced yet in all my years of belief. It was like God's work at life, at, God's life at work in my soul. And so, you know, discipleship, that's kind of what we've understood is like I got to know more, you know, I got to get this, I got to live from it. But Jesus in these stories is telling us, but there's also this different angle of this, which is your, 
healing. You also, you know, you may be stuck in some places, like Peter would have been stuck, and Jesus, and Jesus says, that's not the truest thing about you. Like, you got a lot of life left on this earth not to be lived shackled by what Satan would have you believe, but rather set free if you allow me to walk into that with you. And so we have discipleship, but we also have wholeness. And, and I love, I, I heard from John Eldridge, he kind of laid this out once, and, I, and it just was really meaningful to me. And it's like, we find ourselves in a lot of different places on, on this map. If you can put, go back one more. Oh, yeah, sorry, just keep the numbers up. Um, you can think, like, where are you at in your discipleship journey as it in, involves both a sense of truth and knowledge but also one of wholeness and restoration, of healing and being set free. Discipleship, when we think of like the truth, the bedrock of truth, it's what strengthens the soul. It gives us a firm foundation, an anchor, and restoration, I mean, it's kind of, I'll, I'll say wholeness, is what restores the soul. It identifies where you're stuck, what lies you've let in, and Jesus says, that's not the truest thing about you. Our soul takes damage in this life, and it literally needs healing. And it's both available in Jesus and in the gospel that he gives us. And we find sometimes discipleship without restoration, you know, it can become hardened. It can, it can, be, it can be something that, you know, um, in communities of recovery, alcoholism, other isms, um, communities of recovery say there's something called white-knuckle sobriety. It means like, yeah, I haven't had a drink, but I'm like barely holding on. And, and that's like white-knuckled sobriety. And sometimes our faith in Christ, is, it, can, it can find itself there. It's like white-knuckled. And we find that, you know, sometimes people who have been leading the biggest churches leading the most people to the greatest places in their walk with Christ are the very ones who flame out, are the very ones who have these epic failures. I myself found myself in that place, a, a lifetime of pursuing Jesus, and yet somehow empty in a place that really mattered, where instead of turning and finding real life in Jesus, I found myself reaching for medication, reaching for whatever kind of coping thing, a lot of us find ourselves reaching. It, maybe we're eating, maybe we're shopping, maybe we're watching things we shouldn't be, but we're like, we're just looking for some kind of freedom, some kind of escape, some kind of like, I just, I don't know, this isn't enough. And Jesus says, oh, it's more than enough. And so in our discipleship, if discipleship without restoration can leave us in that place of vulnerability, and then there's also restoration without discipleship, and that's where this, this kind of grid is like, you know, if you find yourself high in counseling and wellness and healing and low in truth, it's like you just, most, most people just can't hold on to anything there. You know, you just kind of keep, you keep going back for that counseling. You keep going back to that conference. You keep going back, you know, because it just can't stick because it's not founded with truth. But you find yourself, you know, and that's where you call that quadrant one on your map there. Quadrant two, you could say this is just where most of the people in the world live. It's low healing. It's low truth. And you just find yourself, the Bible says, tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching. 
you know, number four here is what I think is kind of amazing because that's, that's where maybe you've just like been, like I have my entire life, driving at discipleship from everything I understand about it to be good and right and true and healthy and not finding the healing, finding myself making an agreement that like, I guess, you know, I can't find wholeness until, you know, Jesus comes. I guess I can't find healing from this thing until, and, and you find yourself where pastors are falling out and people are betraying our trust. And yet, number three, this is like the destination for us, the journey. It says, this is where Jesus lives, where we're increasing in both the strength of our soul from the knowledge of the truth of God, but also the restoration of our soul, the healing that's available. And, um, and I just want to kind of leave us there and say, you know, ask you, like, where do you find yourself on that? If maybe you're like me and you're like, restoration, wholeness, counseling, I'm like, no, thank you. Um, it's amazing that God kind of used hardship in my life to waken me up to the needs that were in my soul that needed his hand and his touch. And I, and I want to kind of leave us, um, just going to ask you, there's, there's a video I'm going to play, and it's, it's kind of a simple video. It's, it's a time lapse of a grape vineyard. And you're going to watch this vineyard come to life, flourish, get cut down, go underground. You're going to see rain. Then you're going to see it bud and start to come back. And not just once. You're going to watch it again. And not just twice. I, I think I have it in there three times. Just to, to ask you to lose yourself for just a minute in the reality that this is what life with Jesus looks like. It is seasons of growing, seasons of being pared back, seasons of maybe finding yourself like, I don't see any life to give to others, but Jesus is still at work in my roots, and a bud is coming. Maybe you find yourself looking forward to a spring. Maybe you find yourself in the middle of a winter, but I just want you to, to invite Jesus to meet you in this place and say, what do you need for Jesus in your journey? There's this great, great quote, I'm not sure if I said it today, that, that we are not humans on a spiritual journey, but we're spiritual beings on a human journey. And this is where we can invite Jesus in to say, Jesus, show me, take me, what is it that you have for me? I want to understand. You know, I, I've, I've heard a guy say, and I'll finish with this. We are branches in search of a vine. And we'll find it. We're looking for life. We're starving for life. We submit ourselves all over the place for life. And watch this video and ask Jesus, where am I at in my life with you? Nate.